I come from Earth, a planet of outlaws. My name is Peter Quill. There's one other name you might know me by. Star-Lord. Who? Well, Star-Lord, man. Legendary outlaw. Guys? Forget it. All right, well, good morning. How many Guardians of the Galaxy fans do we have this morning here? Uh, there's a second one coming out in a couple years, and so I was thinking this morning as we jump into Judges chapter 11, if you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 11. Really, Judges 11, it is as if uh, Marvel lifted the story of the Guardians of the Galaxy right out of Judges 11. We're going to see a guy this morning named Jephthah who is essentially the biblical version of Star-Lord, if you want, all right? Uh, he is Peter Quill in his essence, walking in the flesh in Judges 11. So we're going to look at this morning, a guy named Jephthah. And so as we jump into the story in Judges 11, I'll tell you guys, we're going to see a guy who is a slick negotiator. We're going to see a guy who can wheel and deal. And he's going to be one who, like Star-Lord, will be outcast from his people, a prisoner at one point in time who will be kind of banished, but he will return to save the day. Except he's got one uh, flaw in his character, and that's his way with words and his negotiation style, which as we kind of walk through this story this morning in Judges 11, we're going to see this guy, Jephthah, is going to have a character flaw in the way that he negotiates, and it's going to lead eventually to his undoing. As we jump into Judges 11, it's a really fun, it's a really kind of interesting story. As we jump in, I'll just tell you guys, we're going to eventually kind of see this guy's character flaw come to the surface. And as we do, uh, you may not necessarily connect with this guy's personality. You may not necessarily connect with this, the way that this guy maneuvers in situations. But what's really interesting, maybe even ironic as we jump in, is that in Judges 11, this guy's essential character flaw is going to be something that you and I do all the time, but we don't even think about it. We're going to see that this guy's character flaw is going to bite him and lead to his undoing. And it is meant to be a warning for you and I in the midst of a habit that we have that is absolutely at times, I think, ingrained into the human condition. That's what we're going to see this morning in Jephthah. Uh, essentially, as we walk through Judges chapter 11, I'm going to show you three different negotiation scenes in this guy's life. And that's going to ramp up in terms of what he learns and what he uh, kind of moves from it. And so as we jump into Judges 11, I want you guys to see where our story opens and where this guy's background begins. Verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house. For you are the son of another woman. And so Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. It came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. And when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our chief that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. As we kind of get a little sense of the background to Judges 11, this guy's background, this guy named Jephthah, you'll get a sense of why our staff spent way too much time this week debating whether this guy was a modern-day parallel to Peter Quill and Star-Lord or toward Thor. Either way, whether you like DC Comics or Marvel, we were kind of all over that. For you table hosts that are a little bit older, think Robin Hood, all right? Uh, think... Um, Billy the Kid, whatever it is you want. This is kind of this Western thug bandit who's been kind of sent away. And all of a sudden, when the townspeople are in trouble because a bigger and badder enemy has come back, they make a deal with the devil, their own devil, and they bring him back. That's Jephthah. 
That's what happens in this story. And as we kind of unfold it, what we're going to see from Jephthah, really, uh, as you kind of walk through the story, uh, is this. You're going to see three different negotiation scenes in this guy's life. And the first occurs here with the elders of Gilead. They've retrieved him back from banishment and they've come and said, hey, will you fight against the Ammonites because we need your help? We know that you're a reckless thug. We know that you're a trouble, a bad seed, but we really need you. And so would you please come back? Jephthah, who is great with his words, is going to negotiate here with the people. And his response with the people is going to be really different than the guys that we've seen the last couple weeks. If you were here last week, look at a guy named Abimelech. And Abimelech was one of 70 siblings who had a right to the throne and to rule. And when Abimelech showed up on the scene, the first thing that he did in the midst of having a chip on his shoulder was that he wiped out all of the competition. All 70 siblings he just slaughtered on the spot on one stone. Uh, two weeks prior, two weeks prior to this Sunday, we looked at a bunch of guys who no-showed, a bunch of guys who in the midst of crisis, they were nowhere to be seen. And we're going to see a guy this week named Jephthah who will show up, but his response is going to be different than all the others. He will show, and his response will not be one of violence, but one of negotiation. This is a diplomat. This is a politician. This is a guy who's slick with his words, and he can wheel and deal with the best of them. That's Jephthah. And as he shows up, I want you guys to notice how he negotiates because his negotiation tactics will border more toward manipulation than they will negotiation. Because notice the first thing that he does in verse 7. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me? Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? Hey, do you remember that time that you despised all that I was and you sent me packing to the far corners of the earth? Do you remember that time? Do you feel a little bit of guilt? Well, good, right? This guy is going to, in a sense, begin to pluck their emotional cords so that he can get what he wants from them. Uh, I have a daughter in our house, and I'm not going to be sexist here, but I will just say this to you ladies. I feel like you ladies are very adept at plucking emotional cords in the midst of a conflict, all right? My daughter has a way with me and just can wrap me around her finger and own me in a way that no one else can, all right? Girls are just great at that, and that's exactly what Jephthah does. Jephthah will wrap them around his finger, and he will pluck their emotional cords. As he raises up guilt, then he's going to highlight their absolute vulnerability. Notice what he says in verse 7. So why have you come to me now when you are in trouble, right? Hey, do you remember the time that you just totally sent me packing, right? And now you've come calling and groveling back when you are absolutely desperate with absolutely no other options. He so exposes their guilt, so exposes their vulnerability that the next words, the next offer really is on their side. And notice what they say to him in verse eight. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, said, uh, said to Jephthah, For this reason, we have now returned to you that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. They bring this guy back because they need him and they're going to give him everything. That if he will just deliver them from their enemies, he will be king of the land. He will be ruler over the people. He will now have everything that he once could not have. This guy doesn't wipe out the competition. He negotiates to own the competition. And that's exactly what's going to happen as it unfolds in verse 11. And then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Jephthah hasn't gone into battle even yet. He hasn't even laid uh, one enemy aside and they've already given him everything. In terms of wheeling and dealing, this guy is slick. This guy is good with his words. This guy absolutely owns these people when they feel vulnerable and when they feel exploited. 
And the first thing I want you guys to see from Jephthah's life, the first lesson that we're going to learn is this, that people are not assets to be leveraged and exploited. The people are not assets to be leveraged and exploited. And that's exactly what Jephthah does here. He sees a people that are vulnerable, a people that feel guilty, and he will take them for all that they are worth. He will wring them out. He will not negotiate. He will manipulate to get everything that he wants because he's just concerned about himself. And he's going to learn this lesson, really not here, because here he gets everything that he wants. But in the next scene, in the next negotiation scene, he's not going to get what he wants. And the next scene occurs with the Ammonites themselves, the enemies themselves. And a conflict arises between them in verse 12. And we find this, that Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sands of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? The Larry land that he was once banished from, that he's returned to, right? That now he's going to own. And so he identifies the conflict. He says, hey, what is going on? Why have you come here? And what he's going to try to do here in the second scene is what we would call diplomacy. Without raising a sword, without uh, shedding any blood, he's going to see if he can get everything that he wants for his people without any fight whatsoever through diplomacy, through being slick with his words, if he can wheel and deal and negotiate and get what he wants. And so he says, what is the deal? Why are you coming against my people and my land that I've just returned to, Right? And notice what he says in verse 13. The king of the sands of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon, as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan, therefore return them peacefully now. What the sons of Ammon say is there was a day and time in which we had a battle and you beat us, but you took our land. And so now we would like our land back. That's the conflict. So they've arisen and they've rallied around Israel to destroy Israel because they want their land back. This is a significant conflict. This is a conflict that, uh, that even Jephthah may not be able to work his way out of. But the first thing that he does here is he's going to try to soften their anger with a little bit of humor. <laughs> he's going to kind of negotiate it with them. And basically what he's going to say here is, as we didn't even want your land. What we wanted to do originally was just travel through your land. And you could have even exacted a toll, but you wouldn't do that. And so we had to go around your land and around the land of several others who wouldn't let us travel through. And then after that, after we went all the way around your land and avoided your land so that you could stay comfortable, then you arrayed in battle against us. What he does here is he says, we didn't even want your land. He kind of just pokes at them sarcastically. And what he's trying to do is just soften up the anger a little bit. I got in a fight one time in junior high with a kid who was absolutely huge. He lifted me against a wall and said that I had been talking about his mother uh, the day before when school ended. And I was like, I don't know your mother, but you're a big dude. And so clearly she's got to be a good cook, right? Like I kind of just thought, <laughs> let me soften the dude's anger up with a little bit of humor, all right? Uh, because the reality was this dude was a really big dude. He was on the football team, got hit by a car. Uh, the car was in the body shop longer than he was in the hospital. I mean, just a big dude. So I, I, I clearly know... I'm not winning this fight, so maybe I can just kind of soften him up with a little anger. Though that didn't work well, that didn't really cause him to cease and desist at all. And so then I went with a logical route and tried to convince him that I didn't even know his mother, all right? That didn't really work out as well until a friend came and saved my hide, okay? But what Jephthah does here is he kind of starts with a little bit of sarcasm, and it gets him nowhere. And then he just goes logically, and he says, look, here's the deal. We beat you, we took your land, but really what happened here is what happens all across the ancient Near East. When someone arrays in battle and they lose the battle, they take the loser's land. What happened to you a long time ago happens to every single one else. This is how we all operate. So why is there an issue now? In fact, he highlights in verse 26 that this occurred 300 years ago. 
And so now, finally, after 300 years that they had taken the Ammonites' land, the Ammonites now show up 300 years later saying, "Um, excuse me, um, we didn't like what you did 300 years ago. And Jephthah says, why are you just now showing up? What's the deal? A little bit of humor, a little bit of logic, then a little bit of shame. But it ends up in verse uh, 28 that it gets him nowhere. But the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him. Despite his best intended uh, diplomacy, it goes nowhere. The guy who can wheel and deal, the guy who can negotiate with the best of them, the guy who knows how to exploit people and get what he wants, it goes nowhere here. And finally, Jephthah realizes that people are not assets to be leveraged and exploited. A guy that his whole life, as he wheeled and dealed and basically exploited people in the midst of their vulnerability, he realizes here in Judges 11 with the, with the Ammonites that that's not going to work. They're not a people to be exploited. There's not a, they're not a people that he can get leverage on. He cannot negotiate his way into what he wants. And so he starts to panic a little bit. It's interesting in verse 29, notice the text tells us, Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. What's happening in verse 29? In verse 29, he's assembling his army. He's going from one region to the other, recruiting men to join the army so that he can array and battle against the Ammonites at the end of verse 29 as he goes to them. I think in Judges 11 at this point in Jephthah, at the end of his second negotiation that doesn't go the way that he wants, I think he's probably a bit disoriented. <laughs> the guy who is incredibly great at wheeling and dealing and getting most of what he wants, here arrays himself in a situation where he's not getting at all what he wants. The Ammonites can't be leveraged. They can't be exploited. They can't be negotiated with. And all of a sudden, I think he begins to get a little bit panicky. And all of a sudden, he begins to get a little bit anxious. He's arrayed an army, and he's told the elders of Gilead that they will win the war. But I think he begins to get a little bit scared. He's looking at a future that is uncertain and an outcome that he cannot guarantee. And all of a sudden, I think he begins to get a little bit anxious. And his anxiety is going to highlight in verse 30 when I think what he does next is he tries to negotiate with one more party. And this time it's a party you don't negotiate with. It's God. Notice what he does in verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Jephthah here makes a vow. I think here he's negotiating with God. He's arrayed an army. He's gathered an army. And I think he's looking at an outcome that is uncertain. Ever been in that spot where you're looking at a future that you don't know how it's going to go? You visited career fair last week or so, looking for an internship. You don't know how that's going to go. You got your first round of tests coming up this week and you feel anxious and you feel panicky and you don't know how it's going to go. What do you do? In that moment, what Jephthah does is he tries to negotiate with God. And this is how it typically goes, maybe for you, maybe I've had these moments for myself in the midst of my anxiety and my panic. Here's typically what I do. Hey, Lord, um, if you just give me an A on this test, I will then do dot, 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 right? Or maybe for us guys, if she would just say yes to my request for a date, just one date, Lord, I will never do that, that, that again, Right? Or if I could just get into this position, if I could just get this internship, if I could just get this position in a campus organization that people would approve of me and I would get this leadership position and then I will never do this or I will always do that or I will give you this, Lord. We do that instinctively all the time. 
It's exactly what Jephthah does here. And at first, we're not really that concerned by it because it's absolutely so familiar because we do it ourselves all the time. But the reality is what Jephthah is doing and what we do in those moments that are often unconscious is that we're trying to negotiate with God. It's what we call a bribe. It's what we call bargaining. That we're trying to bribe and we're trying to bargain with God. Not people, but with God. What's going to happen for Jephthah as this unfolds? It's fascinating as you look at it as it unfolds. In verse 33, notice the text. Text tells us, He struck them with a very great slaughter from a city that I cannot pronounce to the entrance of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as another city that starts with A that I can't pronounce. And so the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. And when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourine and with dancing. And now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. And you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. In a moment of unconscious thought, when he felt panicky, he made a vow to the Lord in which he said, if you will give me this victory and all the spoils that will come with it, then I will give you that which will come out of my house. Little did he know that what would come out of his house first was going to be his one and only daughter, not an animal to be sacrificed, but his daughter. Commentators are all over the place as this story unfolds as to whether Jephthah, in a sense, dedicated his daughter to the Lord or whether she was literally burned and and suffered death here. Uh, Commentators are all over the place. Ultimately, I don't know, but I kind of lean to the idea that I think that she's going to die by the end of Judges 11. He's going to make a vow to get victory from God, and the result will be that his one and only daughter that he loves most preciously is going to be sacrificed because of the vow he makes. What do you do with that? It's interesting, if you know your Old Testament, there's another story in in Genesis uh, in which you have Abraham, who's the patriarch of Israel, who's going to be, God's going to ask him to sacrifice his one and only son. And so you have that story in Genesis, you have this story in Judges. And the question is, are they the same story? Is God asking Abraham to uh, sacrifice Isaac the same story here as Jephthah sacrificing his one and only daughter? And the answer is no, they are not the same at all. There's a few key critical differences between the two stories. One is this. One, God ordained and imposed that sacrifice upon Abraham. But here in Judges 11, Jephthah imposes this sacrifice upon himself. This is not a divinely imposed sacrifice. Second of all, in Genesis, God is not silent at all. God speaks from the heavens. But in Judges, God is absolutely silent whatsoever. God doesn't speak in this chapter. Jephthah often speaks for him or is speaking to him seemingly, but God doesn't speak at all. Not only that, in Genesis, God provides a substitute for Isaac at the last minute, but in Judges, there is no substitute provided. In Genesis, the result of Abraham's faith, of that moment of incredible sacrifice in which he shows that he would have given anything for the God, God provides a substitute. In the midst of that substitute, we get a generation that comes forth from Abraham as which Abraham's descendants are as numerous as the descendants of the, as, as the stars in the heavens or the sand on the seashore. But as a result of Jephthah's situation here, Jephthah will emerge with no descendants, and his family ends here. These stories could not be more different than one another. 
Ultimately, because I don't think God is present in this vow. I think God is all over Genesis and Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, but God is not present here. Furthermore, I think what you have happening here is in this negotiation is that Jephthah is not Abraham, but second of all, Jephthah's vow is more of a sign of idolatry than it is of faith. Jephthah's vow here is more of a sign of idolatry than it is faith, and this is absolutely critical for you and I to grasp. That when you and I have this human instinctual movement in the midst of our anxiety and our panic to try to bargain with God, to try to coax God to give us what we want, what we're doing there is not faith. It's what the Bible will call idolatry. I want to read you guys from Isaiah chapter 44 as the prophet Isaiah speaks of those who make idols. Notice what he says in Isaiah 44. The one will shape wood and he extends a measuring line and he outlines it with red chalk and he works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and he makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man so that it may sit in his house. Then in Isaiah, the prophet is speaking of those who make idols and they literally make them out of wood so that they can carry them in their pocket and then when they get home, they can put them in their house and they can carry them with them wherever they go. Half of that wood, he burns it in the fire, and over this half, half he eats meat, but the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image, and he falls down before it and worships it. And he prays to it, and he says, Deliver me, for you are my God. The prophet Isaiah is speaking to the absolute folly of idolatry, that we would take something that we would make into a god, and then we would try to carry it around, and we would try to control it so that it would give us what we want. What Jephthah is doing here with a sense of what his God is is exactly what the pagan world does with idolatry all the time, which is let me try to appeal to something that I can carry around and control so that I can coax it to give me what I want. Man, we do this all the time with God. That if I can make him approve of me, if I can do certain things, then he will approve, and then he will give me what I'm looking for, an internship, a girlfriend, a degree, a job, right? Money, right? If only I can do certain things and he'll be impressed or he'll be coaxed or he'll be moved and motivated to do something for me that I'm looking for. That's the very nature of idolatry and there's nothing more contrary to a relationship with the living God, Yahweh, that we see in the Old Testament. Jesus that we see in the New Testament. Nothing is more contrary to walking with that God than what we see Jephthah doing. You do not bargain with God. You don't bribe God. You don't pay God off because you don't need to. <laughs> you don't need to at all. When you and I have this tendency, you and I do, I think this tendency highlights three different things for us. That one, God is not to be an asset to be leveraged, and yet we do it to him all the time. Jephthah first tries to manage and leverage and exploit men, and then I think he tries to do it here to God by the end of the story. But when you and I do this, and when Jephthah does it, it reveals three things. First, uh, whether we want his hand or whether we want his face most. That when you're in those moments of anxiety and panic and you're not sure what's coming in the future, when we have that tendency to negotiate with God or to try to bargain with him or to try to bribe him, what we're doing is highlighting that what we want most from him is what he can do for us with his hand and not a relationship with him where we can see his face. Because when his hand isn't giving us what we want, then we don't really care about his face. We don't really care for him. We make him into a Santa. We make him into Amazon Prime who ships really fast, right? Who can give us what we want. I often thought about what's it like for the rich and famous uh, to actually try to pursue romance, right? 
those that are single who become rich and famous in the midst of their singledom and people are trying to be around them all the time, how do they know whether someone is wanting to be around them because they're rich and famous or because someone's wanting to be around them for who they are? Does that person want my money? Does that person want my fame? Does that person want a little slice of what I have? Or are they truly interested in me? I think the same struggle for the rich and famous is the struggle that I think God has with us all the time when we just come near him because of what he can do for us. But in the midst of our circumstances not going like we want, or they don't seem certain, then all of a sudden we pull away. And that's what the nation of Israel does all the way through the book of Judges. When times are good, they draw near to him. When times go south, they pull away, they forget him, and then they suffer and they cry back out when they need him. Do you pull near to God only when you need him? Do you most just want his hand or are you interested in his face and his person? I think so often when we negotiate, when we bribe and we bargain and we think we can carry and control and coax God, it reveals that really what we want is his hand, not his face. Here's the second thing that I think we see. It's this, that we doubt whether he's going to provide and protect us. It's really interesting. In verse 29, the text tells us that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah before he makes the vow. Okay? So, God is going to provide victory, but he still is doubting whether God's going to do that. And so he takes matters in his own hands, thinking he can coax God into doing something that God already planned to do. God was going to provide. God was going to protect him. He didn't need to make a vow. He didn't need to bargain with God. And the bargaining with God shows his anxiety and it shows his fear that he doesn't ultimately believe that God will protect him and provide him. When you're in those moments where you're unsure of what's coming in the future and you fall back into this, God, I will do this or I will do that. If only you will provide this. You and I have fallen in that place where we ultimately don't believe that he's going to take care of us. And that we think we have to motivate him to take care of us. This would be a little bit like my kids uh, as I come home from work thinking that uh, they need to really impress me and do a lot of things that I'll be pleased with. And so they start to clean the house. They start to take care of everything so that I'll be motivated to cook dinner for them. (laughs) Right? How ridiculous is that, right? Whether they do all the right things or not, I'm going to still provide for them even if I'm frustrated with them. Because that's the nature of a father. That's the nature of a parent. That's the nature of one who has love for someone. You don't have to coax them to provide and protect. They'll do that even when they're frustrated. That's exactly what God does here. He will protect and provide even when the person is disobedient, even when the person is frustrating. That's the nature of the father. That's the nature of the father's heart. And when you and I fall into that need to negotiate, bribe, and make vows and promises, we've forgotten that God will provide. We don't have to coax him. We don't have to make him protect us. Here's the last thing. Here's what I think is most significant. It's this, that when you and I fall into that tendency to negotiate, bargain, and bribe God, coax him and control him, we forget that his gifts come by grace. That his gifts come by grace. The very starting point of a relationship with this creator God, not these pagans of the ancient Near East, is this, that it begins by absolute grace. To enter into a relationship, to know this God that Jephthah is trying to make a vow to, what he's doing here is so antithetical to what it is to have a relationship with this God because this God provided Jesus Christ, his only son who died on a cross so that we could experience forgiveness of sins and eternal life. What the living God does for us is that he provides us what we can never earn, what we can never merit, what we can never coax and work up and motivate someone to do for us. The creator God gave his only son who died on our behalf and moved towards us even when we were hostile, even when we were disobedient to him. 
And he gives us something that is absolutely free. Forgiveness. You can't hoax it. You can't merit it. You can't work it up. He just provides it absolutely freely. Absolutely freely. That's the starting place of a relationship with this God. And if you don't know God, that's where it begins. Not by works, not by mustering up a lot of good things that make him impressed so that he would want a relationship with us. He looked at us when we were most down and out and he said, I love you and I'm going to move towards you even when you don't want a relationship with me. That's love. (laughs) That's grace. That's mercy. And that's how the relationship starts. But somewhere along the way, for those of us who have a relationship with him, who have entered into that moment where we've trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to enter into that relationship, somewhere along the way, we forget that that's how the relationship began. We begin to try to bargain with him again. His gifts that started by grace, we begin to think that we can earn them or that if we work hard enough, then he'll look upon us with favor. And that's not how it works. It's not how it works at all. That his gifts and his blessings and his relationship are always by grace. Freely. You can't coax him. You can't control him. He moves towards us with absolute grace and absolute freedom. It'd be a little bit like showing up at HEB later today. On Sundays, they always put out a ton of free samples. Okay. You can go eat your whole lunch there today if you went shopping, all right? You're like, like, I'm kind of getting hungry already. Don't talk about food, okay? But it'd be like showing up at HEB with all the free samples that are out there and then trying to pay off the HEB staff person, right? Like, it makes absolutely no sense. The, the, The gifts are already provided. You can already eat lunch. You don't need to pay. So why are you still trying to bargain when they've provided extravagantly and lavishly already? God bless HEB, right? Now, the point of the sermon, right? It's maybe all you remember, right? But that's the utter foolishness that we have sometimes when we come before God and we try to bargain with him when he's already, because of Jesus Christ, provided extravagantly for us, absolutely freely, and he can't be bought. Why? Because he's provided everything already. In him, we have all the blessings of heaven. We have all of the riches of the inheritance of Jesus Christ. We have all we need for life and godliness, and he's already provided it to us. So why do we bargain? Why do we bribe him? Why do we try to coax him as if we can control him to get from him what we want? When he's promised, I'll provide for you. I will take care of you. Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. Trust me. Jephthah makes a critical vow here. He doubts the goodness, the provision, the protection of God, and he will suffer mightily for it. I don't think God would have forced him to sacrifice uh, his daughter. I think he could have turned around, but he didn't. Because he was so indebted to a vow he made, and it's utter foolishness, and it's utter folly, and that's the point of Judges 11. The guy who thinks he can wheel and deal and bargain with the best of him tries to bargain with God and it goes poorly. You and I aren't intended to bargain with the living God. Because what he provides, he provides by grace and he provides it absolutely freely because he loves us. And for some of us, that's entering into a relationship maybe for the first time with him today. Realizing you don't have to work. You don't have to merit his approval. That he looks upon you even at your lowest moment and he says, I love you and I'm going to move towards you. And if you have entered into a relationship with him, if you know that living God, if you know Jesus Christ who gave his only life for you, then Judges 11 is a reminder that you don't need to bargain with him on the backside of a relationship. His gifts are still by grace. That relationship stands and falls by grace. Not by works, not by your merit, not by what you can muster and what you can coax out of him. That he loves you and that he wants to provide for you and wants to protect you. Let me pray for us. Lord, we come before you this morning, and as we look at Jephthah, we see ourselves so often. That in the midst of panic, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of those moments of uncertainty, when we don't know what will come, 
Lord, we fall back into this place where we just feel like we've got to coax you or convince you to look out for us, and nothing could be further from the truth. That frankly, you'll provide better than we could ever provide for ourselves, that you'll protect us way better than we could ever protect ourselves, and that you move towards us and our relationship stands and falls, it begins and it ends because of your grace, your extravagant, your scandalous grace. Lord, that we don't have to bargain with you. We can't bribe you because that's not how you work. Why bargain with one who's provided us everything? And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning, Lord, even as we jump into discussion time, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see these things afresh. You'd help us as we would think about our own lives, as the way that we handle some of these situations, Lord. I pray that you would retrain in us a different response. Not to treat you like a pagan God we carry and can control, but one who looks after us in ways better than we could ever look after ourselves. Lord, reorient our perspective on you. Reorient our approach towards you. Help us to begin anew and to be brought back to grace where it started for us and where it continues for us. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen.